the Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Awards in partnership with Investec and now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear the successes of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close on June the 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll be asking whether Donald Trump could still be the next president, despite everything. We'll be looking into the ghoulish world of Anglican exorcisms. And finally, we'll be learning about why Danish sperm is so popular in the UK. First up, in his cover piece for the magazine this week, Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford, and columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, Neil Ferguson, argues that in spite of everything, Donald Trump could still win the 2024 presidential election. He joins us now with Jacob Halbrun, editor of The National Interest. Neil, this week Donald Trump has been charged with sexual abuse, which would in any normal times sink a presidential candidate, yet you say that he's likely to be the next president of the United States. Why? <laughs> well, there's nothing normal about uh, Donald Trump's political career. And as he himself said, if he committed homicide in Fifth Avenue, he could still count on voters. The many legal cases behind him and ahead of him will serve only one political function, namely to keep him in the news. And as long as he's in the news, it's very, very difficult for any other Republican candidate for uh, the presidential nomination to get airtime. And this isn't accidental. The Democrats want Trump to be in the news. And that's why there are so many legal cases involving him. It's part of their strategy to make sure that he is the nominee. Because their theory of the case is that Joe Biden beats Donald Trump in all conceivable presidential elections. I think they're wrong, but I think that's what's going on. And I think that's why he's very likely to be the nominee. And Neil, why do you think the Democrats are wrong that they will defeat Trump if he is the Republican candidate? Because there's going to be a recession. And that's the thing they keep forgetting. Because, because of the mistakes they made in fiscal and, and also the Fed's mistakes in monetary policy, there's going to be a recession. It's going to come ter- terribly late at the worst time, really, for them as the country is turning its mind to, to the election. It's going to start late this year, probably run on into next year, the election year. And uh, no incumbent president in a century has been re-elected if there was a recession in the two years before the election. So Joe Biden, who's not really terribly popular at the moment, pre-recession, is going to be well underwater by November of 2024. And if if I'm right and Trump's the nominee, I think he has a, a pretty good chance of winning. Jacob, what do you make of this idea that the Democrats are pinning all their hopes on the succession of legal cases ruining Trump's chances? Do you, I mean, do you think his legal troubles will ever catch up with him? Yes, I think the case today was a 
first shot that, that landed legally against Trump. Until now, he's been sort of a legal Houdini who has managed to escape serial assaults of the law on him. And today, or yesterday, for the first time, a jury came down unanimously and found him liable for $5 million in the case filed by Eugene Carroll. And it will embolden the other prosecutors in the cases that Trump is facing. He no longer has the nimbus of being a president who is invulnerable to the law. That facade has been cracked, if not shattered. That's is why I found Neil's piece sweeping provocative and in the end, utterly wrong in his diagnosis of Biden's future. I look forward to our dinner in November uh, <laughs> next year when you'll be paying. Yeah, <laughs> so do I. So, so Neil, um, you quote in the piece the low approval ratings. There's the new polling this week showing Biden at his lowest approval ratings since the start of his presidency. Where, in your opinion, did it all go wrong for the Biden administration uh, in terms of polling? Well, the Biden administration came in with all kinds of heady rhetoric about uh, transformative uh, presidencies. And we had the usual suspects lining up to say he was going to be the next Franklin Roosevelt. No, he was going to be Lyndon Johnson doing the Great Society, but avoiding Vietnam and so on. And I said at the time, I didn't find any of this terribly convincing and that I thought a more plausible role model was Jimmy Carter who came in with similar highfalutin aspirations and quickly got into an economic mess and a geopolitical mess. And that's exactly what Biden did. Uh, they made a huge mistake with a superfluous stimulus bill that drove inflation up uh, to levels not seen since the early 80s. And uh, then they blundered into uh, a war in Ukraine, which they're on the hook to finance, uh, which has no in end in sight. And although support hasn't been exactly collapsing for Ukraine, in fact, it's interesting how uh, resilient it's been, as time goes on, uh, the American electorate has something of a track record of losing interest in this kind of thing, especially when it costs money and the economy starts to hurt. In terms of on the right track, polling, it's already not good. And that, that, as I said, is before the recession. Right now, you've got full employment, inflation's come down. But the only reason inflation's come down is that the Federal Reserve has, has hiked interest rates more steeply than uh, at any time since Paul Volcker was at the Fed. And although that, that credit crunch hasn't hit consumers yet, it will. And when that happens, I think Biden's already somewhat weak favorability and approval ratings will get a lot weaker. To say nothing of the fact that Democrats, never mind Republicans, acknowledge the man's too old for a second term. But that's not really that's not really the key issue. I think even if he were the same age as Jimmy Carter, he'd have exactly the same problem uh, that Carter had in 1980, which was messed up economy, messed up foreign policy, goodbye, one-term president. And Jacob, if it is Biden v. Trump, as Neil suggests it might be, despite all these legal battles ahead, I mean, what do you make of Trump's chances then? Or can you just not see that situation happening? I think Trump can definitely win the Republican primary, though it's not a done deal yet. 
But how on earth is he going to win a general election? The gender gap was already at six or seven points in 2020. It's only going to be exacerbated by the trial that took place yesterday, the other trials that are taking place. Trump still faces another defamation case with E. Jean Carroll. The economy, inflation came down to 4.9% today, which was better than expected. There is no iron law that the United States is going to enter a recession. It could, in fact, continue to have a strong growing economy over the next two years. We don't know for certain. And as as for Ukraine, far from being an imbroglio, it could turn out to be the defining success of Biden's presidency, in which he, in fact, emulates Ronald Reagan in supporting proxy forces abroad without directly enmeshing himself into the conflict with American ground troops. So I think that Biden may, in fact, romp to victory in the next two years, and that the low poll poll numbers that he's experiencing now are a salutary wake-up call for him. He's not going to walk into this election overconfident. He holds a lot of cards. He's a sitting president. Historically, it's not easy to unseat an American president who's intent that's not true. on a second that's term. Just, I mean, it's very interesting to listen to, but it has the great weakness of not being true. If you're an incumbent and there's been a recession, you don't get re-elected. Ask Gerald Ford. Ask Jimmy Carter. Ask George H.W. Bush. It is very, very difficult to get re-elected if you are president during recession or shortly after one. And that's what your whole argument falls down on. Unless you are telling me that miraculously the economy is going to avoid a recession, I find the whole story implausible. To add to that, can I just remind you that elections now are incredibly close, whoever is the candidate. Uh, They're close because the machines are extremely effective in most states and indeed in most counties. So elections are decided, as we saw back in 2020, in a relatively small number of places. So I don't think one can really confidently predict that anybody romps home to victory. I certainly don't think Trump will romp to victory. I think it'll be extremely close. And probably the Democrats will win the popular vote, but I think they'll lose the Electoral College because I think there'll just be enough damage by then for people to think enough of Sleepy Joe. Trump is an extraordinary political phenomenon, unlike uh, anything we've seen in American politics in our lifetimes. The cases against him, I mean, let's remember, this is a civil case that has just been uh, been held relating to uh, a sexual assault that may have happened in 1995 or maybe in 1996. Uh, plaintiff can't remember when it was. I'm not sure an enormous number of Republican-leaning vo- voters are going to find that as damning as you seem to. And I'd add finally that when you add the economics in, the assumption that women will never again vote for Trump will turn out to be wrong because economics dominates. I mean, the reason Bill Clinton beat George H.W. Bush was the economy, and that was Jim Carvel's great insight. The economy stupid was one of the key slogans for that campaign. The economy dominates. And and that's the thing that the Biden folks are forgetting as they wage lawfare on Donald Trump. But Neil, don't you think that, um, I mean, just before the the midterm elections, 
the end of last year, there was all this talk of a Republican red wave. It was going to be an absolute bloodbath for the for the Democrats and uh, rather against the odds. Uh, the Democrats did far less badly than was than was uh, predicted, even increasing their numbers in, in the Senate and so on. I mean, is it possible that, that people are underestimating Joe Biden's popularity with the electorate, even now, despite uh, possibility of a recession? Our midterms are not like presidential elections. Biden wasn't the major factor. And, and that, that, I think, uh, is clear. I, I would say that uh, it's a mistake to make, uh, draw inferences from uh, 2022 when you're thinking about, about 2024. It's more important to look at 2020 and realise that that was close, considering <clears throat> that at that point... Uh, the uh, U.S. economy had plunged into recession because of, of COVID. Remember, Trump's another example of how hard it is to get re-elected if a recession happens. One happened because of COVID. Everybody thought he completely screwed it up. And so it, he lost considerable support for having mishandled the pandemic. Then it turned out the following year that even more people died of COVID when Joe Biden was president. So the COVID issue has kind of gone away for uh, Trump. And, and I think if I were a democratic strategist, I'd be far less sure uh, that the strategy of promoting Trump, keeping him in the news, uh, wanting him to be the nominee is the right one to pursue. I suspect that the other Republican contestants are more beatable than, than Trump, who, who retains this very powerful support from precisely the kind of voters who turn out at, at, at primaries. And I don't think that uh, any amount of, of litigation will change that. Jacob, are there any Republican contestants you can see beating Trump? For the nomination right now, it looks pretty implausible. And I, I don't disagree with Neil about the stop right effects there. that a, a recession <laughs> would have. But uh, I, I just don't think we're doomed to experience one. Well, Larry Summers, the- Larry Summers thinks it's 70% probable. And I don't know about you, but I, I think Larry has been hitting the ball at the park on his economic calls ever since Biden was elected. He called the inflation in February 2021, and I think he's calling the recession. It's not a certainty, uh, nothing much is, but I, I would say the big problem for the Democrats is that the Fed has to be tough to regain its credibility. The markets are fantasizing that they'll be cutting rates later this year. I don't think they will, because inflation's not gonna be down anywhere close to 2%. And so there's bad stuff coming, which will disappoint markets quite apart from consumers. And this is what's crucial. There's just, you know, you can't point to a single case of a president getting reelected under these conditions. And I went back and I refreshed my memory on the, to me, not so distant uh, events of, of, of the 70s, uh, 80s and 90s. And it's fascinating to see the newspaper coverage. I didn't check the spectator coverage, but the US newspaper coverage emphasized that it was the economy that sunk Ford, it was the economy that sunk Carter, uh, and it was the economy that sunk Bush Sr. And I think it'll be the economy that sinks Biden. And just finally, Neil, if Trump does come back, I mean, how, how on earth is America going to react to that? I mean, what can you foresee happening? Well, everybody's head will explode on the Stanford and Harvard and Yale campuses and in the New York Times office, uh, although they'll notice that their circulation bumps up. (laughs) And in CNN, there'll be a great gnashing of teeth. And so there'll be a kind of uh, atmosphere of hysteria, as there was in November 2016. And people will be writing extraordinarily uh, 
hyperventilating pieces predicting the end of the Republic, as they did then. And there'll be lots of pieces reminding us of the long list of crimes that Donald Trump has committed, including attempted insurrection. All of that will be going on, and it'll be noisy. Uh, but meanwhile, market will rally, as it did in 2016, because everybody who's interested in investment knows that the Trump economic policies were a good deal better than the Biden economic policies. Uh, if Biden reassembles a team that includes Kevin Hassett, Chris Liddell, maybe Jared Kushner, uh, there would be good reason to think that the economy would turn a corner, which it would anyway, because the recession by that time would be coming to an end. And so we'll have the cognitive dissonance that we had in late 2016 when people were predicting the end of the world and the market was rallying strongly. Uh, the thing that I find odd about uh, these conversations is is that dissonance. It, it makes it hard to talk about this scenario in the US uh, right now. I, I notice that people don't really want to have this conversation. And I think it's because he is so divisive. I mean, there are relatives in families I know that don't speak to one another because one relative backed Trump and the others all hate him. It, it will be very divisive. But of course, it won't be the end of the republic, or at least probably not. And it'll probably be good news uh, for the economy. So prepare yourself for um, a kind of headache. You know, order uh, Advil in advance, or do what I'm doing. I'm coming to England uh, for the academic year, um, 23-24, and I'll, I'll probably just stay here until the election's over it'll, it'll be much safer <laughs> and i won't have to listen to heads exploding thank you neil and jacob next up in the magazine this week the journalist andrew watts interviews the reverend canon dr jason bray the bishop of st asaph's deliverance minister or the anglican priest charged with exercising evil spirits they both join us now to discuss in a little more detail what goes on during an exorcism Andrew, let's start with you. Can you start by telling listeners how you came to meet Father Jason and why you wanted to write about exorcisms this week? Well, I came across it from reading uh, Father Jason's excellent book. And it fascinated me because we've all seen films about exorcists and very sensational films. And I wanted to find out what the, uh, what the real thing was like. So I, w- I went to see Father Jason at his wonderful church in Wrexham. And what did you discover? Well, it's a lot, uh, as you'd expect, a lot less dramatic. The thing about uh, exorcism or or deliverance ministry, as we now call it, is that people are very discreet about it, which means that the films are the the only sort of understanding of it that most of us have, and they're completely different to what actually happens in reality. And talking to Father Jason, it's more like a a vicar's normal day-to-day work, uh, pastoral work, caring for people in the community rather than the casting demons out that that you will see in the film. Well, uh, Father Jason, I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit uh, about that. I mean, if if the the image we get from fiction uh, when it comes to such things is so different from reality, I wonder if you could tell our listeners what does happen in reality with deliverance ministry and and also perhaps how uh, one becomes... A deliverance minister. How are you chosen for that role? Okay. Deliverance ministry basically has two aspects of it. One is 
I suppose to do with places really and um, you know that can be mainly to do with um, I suppose hauntings ghosts that sort of thing poltergeist activity so that's a sort of discrete element of what we do so ghost busting if you like the other thing that people are really interested in is the um is the dealing with people stuff so um and that would be the uh, uh you know the whole idea of possession actually what we find is that uh, very 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 few people have any sort of well, realistic demonic possession. Um, so it, we regard it as a theoretical possibility and we learn how to spot these things. So we're looking for somebody with preternatural strength, preternatural knowledge of you as um, um, as a person, things they really shouldn't know about you, and uh, often preternatural knowledge of languages that they've never studied. So we're looking for those things, but um, you know, we, you know, we very, very rarely find them. What does tend to happen is that people tend to sort of go online and they, you know, they speak themselves out, they get really worried about things, or they can hear voices. And in a sense, what we're trying to do is to sort of help them to work out what it is. So the chance of if somebody's hearing voices, they, you know, they've got some sort of psychiatric illness, very often schizophrenia or something like that. And so what we try to do is to sort of say, okay, you know, uh, if you're hearing voices, you haven't got any of these symptoms, quite clearly, you're not possessed, that's great. And then, but what can we do to help you? And um, a lot of the time, it's sort of trying to work out what medication they're on, what medication they should be on, and uh, trying to point them to people who can really help. Obviously, the church has a role in healing people in this way. uh, And so very often we'd say prayers for them. But that's very much part of a therapeutic process that would involve, um, you know, medically trained professionals. In terms of how you get into this sort of job, Basically, it's um, it's almost self-selecting. So um, you have some sort of interest. I had a slightly weird experience when I was a curate, and um, it basically, you know, sort of meant that I thought that there was something something about this ministry. Uh, I hadn't really been trained for it, but um, in theological college, they didn't really talk about these sorts of things, and they said there's no particular need for it. But uh, when I actually encountered this sort of thing for myself, I thought, yeah, actually, maybe there is something to it. Maybe this is something that I'm interested in. I had a couple of experiences and uh, then offered myself a training, was accepted by the bishop and uh, went on a a sort of week-long training course. And basically, that's it. And Father Jason, are you able to tell us about your own, own weird experience or some of the weird experiences that you have seen in your line of work? Okay, so the experience I had was, in a sense, twofold. When I was ordained, uh, we got given a house, uh, you know, it sort of goes with the territory, really. Uh, curate's house, not terribly big, not not particularly old, uh, but it was cold and dark when we first saw it. It was January, pretty much everything's cold and dark in January. Um, so over the next couple of months, we you know, uh, did some decoration, and uh, and then we moved in in the um, uh, well, at the end of June just as I was being ordained. And the house basically stayed cold and dark. Uh, it was, um, you know, sort of, um, we thought it had been empty for 18 months and, um, 
you know, that was basically the reason why. So a couple of things happened really when we were in the house. Uh, one of the first things that happened was that our first first child was born, a boy called Tom, Thomas. And, you know, we discovered that actually his bedroom was colder and darker than any other room in the house. But it was the it was the corner room in a sense. It had two external walls. We thought, well, actually, it's been really nicely decorated and it's actually quite conveniently position for our bedroom so it's uh it's the easiest room to get to so uh you know we leave him there and um you know things will just right themselves eventually so winter came along uh, we put the heating on realized that there was uh, the house was still cold and dark but that when the uh, radiators needed bleeding so bled that, bled that radiator it wasn't in his room his room was still colder than any other room in the house that the house was just absolutely freezing my mother made some beautiful um, sort of floor length curtains that uh, uh, went in front of all the doors that didn't seem to make very much difference and uh, there was a persistent draft that came down the stairs which was a complete pain because in those days when phones were plugged into the wall, that was where the phone was plugged into the wall. So when you were sitting there talking to your friends or family, you'd have to have to sit in the draft. Draft didn't seem to be coming in from anywhere. Okay, we just live with it. It's cold, dark house. That's it. And then two things happened, really. This was the following summer. So it would have been, you know, sort of in July the following year. So I went on a course to learn how to be a priest. So I was ordained um, ordained priest that year, having been ordained deacon the year before, went on a course to learn how to do it, came back, and my wife, who is exceedingly level-headed, was basically sort of freaking out in a sense, because she said, while you were away, the uh, Tom's room was so cold, it was like walking into an icebox. And basically, I had to sort of bring him into bed with me uh, because it was just so cold. It was awful. I don't know what's going on in this house. I don't know what's wrong with it. You need to do something about it. And, you know, so pretty much simultaneously, um, I had a strange experience myself. So, uh, you know, I was reading in bed, uh, thought, you know, just before I settle down for the night, I'll just, you know, just go to the loo, went to the loo, standing at the bathroom door, and froze because I could sense that there was somebody standing the other side of the bathroom door. Um, it was somebody about my height, a man. I sensed that it was a priest. He was looking at me, glaring at me with, uh, you know, sort of hostility and was wearing like a sort of stunt sunburst mask. Uh, it was really quite strange, like a sort of um, three feet uh, three feet wide wooden mask, and he was looking at it through uh, little holes in the front, and I was absolutely terrified. Um, so I stood there, I don't know how, for how long, eventually plucked up enough courage to open the door. There was nobody standing there. But I was, you know, you know, sort of completely freaked out myself. So um, threw myself under the, you know, under the duvet. And uh, Laura said, "Okay, what's wrong with you? You look like you've seen a ghost." Well, I said, "I haven't actually seen anything." But and I explained, and she said, "Okay, you know, enough is enough. Go and talk to go and talk to the vicar." So uh, the vicar was my training incumbent. He was the guy responsible for my training. He came in, splashed holy water around the place, said some prayers. There were prayers in Latin. I don't use prayers in Latin. I don't know where he got them from. And he refused to let me see what he was using. So splashed holy water around the place, said some prayers in Latin, mainly in Tom's bedroom. We went and said the Lord's Prayer in the main room in the house. And the house basically just 
got back to normal. Instead of having the heating on all the time and cranked up all the way, we were then turning the thermostat down. The house was sort of warm and just a pleasant place to be. And friends were reporting afterwards that um, they hadn't actually liked being in the house when we were there because they just sort of just found it creepy and just really quite strange. After the book was published, my niece actually got in touch with me and said, uh, um, she said, you know, when I, was a, when I was a little girl, my parents always used to say, we're going right to Jay's house. You'll have to put an extra coat on because it's always freezing there. So they'd noticed as well. After that, the house was fine. But I thought, actually, there's something to this. So, uh, so I went on, you know, went on training and, uh, and here I am 25 years later. Goodness. Well, that... Um... I got sort of, uh, <laughs> I actually started to almost feel a bit chilly just, just listening <laughs> listening to that, uh, Father Jason. I wonder, I wonder, okay. Andrew, uh, and I think you approach your piece with a, a, a very sort of um, uh, analytical um, analytical approach to your to your piece. I wonder, if you, have you ever had any experiences in your life uh, which you can't quite explain in that way? And perhaps you could have used a deliverance minister such as Father Jason. Well, normally, uh, as Father Jason says, you, you look for the natural uh, explanation. Uh, there is a room in our house, the spare room, which my family all call the scare room. <laughs> <laughs> no one likes standing there because you can hear movements in the night. Uh, and I realised it was rats in the attic. <laughs> and, and Father Jason, what what is the church's explanation for the sort of phenomena that you accounted I mean is it how how does the church sort of explain it and 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 how does the holy water and all the prayers how does that then counter it actually it's really interesting because we don't really have uh, an explanation Uh, we don't really have a theology for this sort of thing for ghosts for um you know you know the paranormal and interestingly it's something that we're working towards um, so I've been on conferences where, you know, sort of people have basically sort of batted these ideas around and said, actually, we're still working in the dark. Um, right, there are some Christian groups who are obviously not very happy about the idea of ghosts at all. You basically say that ghosts are some sort of demons, that all ghosts are some sort of demons. But in a sense, uh, uh, you know, Christians have always believed in ghosts from the very beginning. People have always believed in ghosts from the very beginning. And um, there are a couple of sort of ghost stories in the Bible, if you like. There's uh, uh, one where uh, the witch of Endor uh, summons up the ghost of um, the prophet Samuel for King Saul so that he can find out what's going to happen in the future. Samuel's really cross about the whole thing and uh, and sort of predicts the you know complete disaster. Uh, whether he would have completed predict a complete disaster and, and other, other other circumstances, I don't know. Um, but then there um, the sort of resurrection appearances of Jesus. So when Jesus actually appears to his disciples, they, they think it's a ghost. And he says, look, I'm not a ghost. You know, I, I, give me some food. I'm going to eat and drink in front of you. And in a sense, he doesn't say, don't be so stupid. There's no things as ghosts. He said, look, I'm not a ghost. Um, they also have this thing when uh, they see him walking on water, they think it's a ghost. He gets into the boat and said, look, it's, 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 it's really me. It's not a ghost. So um, in a sense, it's part of the Christian tradition. And the fact that they continue to appoint people like me to deal with the paranormal suggests that somewhere along the line, somebody thinks that it's, you know, that it's a real thing that needs to be dealt with. But we're still not quite sure how it works. You know, there seem to be some people who are trapped somehow 
between phases of reality, if you like. So occasionally people will see somebody that they know who's died and, you know, is still around and is some way trying to communicate with them, Uh, maybe trying to communicate a sort of message of comfort, but um, sometimes it's another form of communication, um, protection, um, who knows. And then you also get the sort of um, slightly weird phenomena where people are almost like sort of trapped in well, you know, sort of seen going about their daily lives. So the Roman soldiers that go through the Praetorium in York in, you know, the basement on the house, um, in the minster or the uh, fox hunt that comes through the wall in the pub occasionally, they're not really there, but somehow they're trapped, I don't know, or they're recorded by, by the stones. Sometimes when significant structural work is done to a house, something's disturbed. Yeah. So, um, but how you actually rationalize this and how you work it through theologically is a completely different matter. But we do know that what we do is that we invite God to deal with it. So there's a wonderful quote in one of the Narnia books about uh, Aslan, of course, who's the lion who represents Jesus. And uh, um, so one of the characters says, well, why doesn't Aslan just do it? And uh, the answer that comes back is, well, actually, maybe he just likes to be asked and I suppose what we're doing as deliverance ministers is just politely asking God to deal with this. And um, that seems to work. Well, Andrew, that's, a, that's a, something you uh, get across, I think, very well in your piece. Is it's, it's a very Anglican way, uh, in a way, of, of dealing with paranormal activity, which is kind of work out what works practically rather than kind of waiting for the theology. Um, yes, yes. That was something that I, I loved about uh, Father Jason's book, that you didn't have to wade through uh, chapters about demonology and the names of demons. And it's just what actually happened and how he dealt with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm not an expert on these things at all. Um, I went to see somebody once, I relate this in the book, who was, um, who was talking about having an incubus. And I got no idea at all what an incubus was. I spoke to a friend of mine who just laughed and said, well, an incubus is just this thing that does does these, um, you know, that basically impregnates women. I said, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, what do you know? You're completely rubbish at this sort of thing. You know, I just go and deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you going to call? Well, Andrew and Father Jason, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, both of you. And finally... The author and journalist Sophia Money Coutts writes this week about the preference amongst British women looking to conceive for importing Viking sperm from Denmark. She joins us now along with Annemette Ardnall Lauritsen, the CEO of the European Sperm Bank. Sophia, can you start by outlining to listeners how you came across this story? Yes, I learned about the imports, uh, specifically really of Danish sperm into the UK, It was um, about three years ago when I recorded my own podcast about egg freezing and my journey through egg freezing and um, various, well, just the research led me to realise that um, almost half the sperm imported into this country um, comes from abroad and an enormous number of that specifically comes from Denmark for um, various reasons. And I interviewed an anonymous Danish sperm donor for that podcast who was very frank and honest about it all. So that was really when I, yeah, I, I, I realised that it was a thing and spoke to a few British women um, about it as a result. And there are various reasons which I'm sure we're going to get into. 
Sure. And, and and what is the reason for Danish sperm being so popular in the UK? The main reason, I think, I mean, there are two, I think, I mean, Anna might, might correct me. I think it's the fact that Denmark specifically has been incredibly ahead of the rest of us and really the rest of the world, maybe up there with America in terms of the sperm industry, if we can refer to it as that, the sperm donating industry. Um, and they have, yeah, they just got out in front of everyone else and um, they have a much more liberal and frank attitude in Denmark towards it to the extent that for Danish men, for the man that I called John on my podcast who I interviewed, he compared it to blood donation in Denmark and said he and his friends had literally discussed it in the bar and decided it would be a cool thing to do, like blood donation. So so that's one reason. And I think in the course of looking at this, re- researching this story, I also learned that, I mean, I knew that British sperm banks were very few and also have almost no sperm in them, but I did not realise until I started work on this story that the UK's biggest sperm bank the London sperm bank and they claim to be the UK's biggest has only 29 sperm donors which is just a sort of shockingly low number to me so no wonder women therefore who want to be um, parents here single parents or, or, or lesbian couples look abroad because because there really is no option and Anametta you're you're the CEO of the European sperm bank I wonder if you could tell our listeners to start with a little bit of uh background on the organization and where it came from and and what exactly it is that uh, it does. Yeah, I think we were founded back in 2004 and and we have the ambition to let women choose their sperm donor themselves. At this point in time, it was very much through the clinic where the doctor sort of chose the donor who they thought matched the couples. And we had this idea uh, this vision that you actually want to choose the genes you're having children with yourself. Uh, the, due to that, we also provide a lot of um, material about the donor, an extensive profile. Uh, we do audio interviews where you can listen to the donor's voice. We have a handwritten note. So we have a full package that the parents can look to to sort of figure out whether this person matches their idea about a donor. And then also for the children to have something to look at when or listen to when, when they grow up and, and, and look for the mirror that the donor can be. Uh, and, and, and with that ambition, we, we, uh, we went into uh, to the, the area of donation. And over the, the, the course of time, we have also realized that Copenhagen and, and, and other cities in Denmark, they, they might be willing to donate, but we are still a, a country with rather few people. So we, uh, we expanded uh, into the, the UK. Uh, so we are actually also a UK sperm bank. I think with the numbers you just gave from London sperm bank, I would claim we are UK's largest sperm bank uh, with all the donors we have from our, our UK office. Uh, then we have an office in the Netherlands and we have an office in Germany. Uh, and this is, of course, also because there are uh, couples and, and women out there who like to have a donor from the country where they live. Uh, and and they, they find that as, uh, as an important part of their fertility uh, story. So we, we, uh, we added that to the perspective coming out of Denmark and, and adding that. So we took the European uh, sperm bank sort of method and history and vision uh, more into other European countries. And in your UK branch, uh, have you found that uh, you, you're, you're faced with um, slightly stricter regulations about donation um, than in your other branches throughout Europe, which Sophia um, mentions in the piece, you know, the sort of greater anonymity of the donors, for example. I mean, is that something which you've you've come across in the UK branch of European Sperm Bank? 
I think at least it's true that in the UK it's less it it is less known that you can donate. So it, it's not something you necessarily talk about in your boys group or at a dinner table, and and they need a lot more publicity about donation. I, I think those who actually found us uh, finds us and 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 come to uh, to our office are else willing to to donate as we see in other countries. But but uh, but we have to do a bit more effort to to find them, and I think also some of them are thinking an extra time about whether they want to do this uh, or or not. Uh, I think that will take a couple of years before UK think about this as blood donation. Uh, so there are definitely where where Denmark is is uh, is more liberal or less tabooed about uh, donation of of um, of gametes than we have seen in in uh, in Denmark, for instance. Sophia, that's one of the areas that you talk about quite a lot in your piece is the, I guess, both both the cultural differences and the legal differences between Denmark and the UK. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I suppose in particular, the changes that came in, which meant that donor children can now find their fathers mm. when they turn 18 in the UK and how, and how that has changed. Yeah, things. in 2005 in the UK, we passed a law um, which said that uh, from then on, children born from sperm sperm donor babies essentially had the right had to be able to be able to um track down or at least be given the details of their anonymous their, their sperm donor parent when they turned 18 which actually makes this year quite an interesting year because that was in 2005 it is now 2023 and therefore we're 18 years on so the hfea the big sort of british authority that regulates the fer- uh, fertility industry um, has just announced um, that from it's this October, the first baby born by a sperm donor since that law passed will be able to apply to get the details, which means that you get the full name, the last known address and the sperm donor's birth date. So if they want to, then the, the child can then try and track down that parent. And does that but, yeah, parent the, have any legal obligations to that child? No, no legal obligations, which is generally standard across across the world because you you are not viewed as a legal parent. If you are a sperm donor, I'm sure Annamette would say that, you know, you've endless forms, you are not a legal parent. So you're under no obligation, no financial obligation. Um, no, yeah, you know, you're, you're sort of off the hook, as it were, on that um, front. But you still may get someone knocking on the door going, hey, dad, it's me. So, um, so there is a theory that that, that change in two thousand five um, has put off a lot of a lot of British donors, which I think yes is true. I mean, there's all sorts of theories. I also think yeah, there's there's mad discrepancies which I hadn't really appreciated before working on this piece between our industry and, for example, the the in Denmark, where for instance in the UK, if you go onto the London Sperm Bank website, you can get some information, but you can't get any pictures, you can't get any voice recordings, you get very scant detail, I would say, for, as one of the women who I spoke to for this story said, to, put to me, the biggest decision of her life, really, is who, is who she was going to pick as to be the father of her baby. And therefore, you go onto the European Sperm Bank website or Cryos or, or any of the American ones, and you get you get a sort of bewildering array of information. It's amazing. You can get, in, in Denmark, you can get baby pictures, you get voice recordings, you can get reports from the staff, you get a ton of information. In America, you can even get adult pictures if you want, or I love this, you can get a, an expression of their creative sort of intent. You can get like a poem, or you, in some cases, I've spoke to some friends who, um, you can get them singing a song, that kind of thing, if you really want a musical baby um and yet we we don't have that in in this country and what's so mad 
those that is that we can import sperm from America or obviously from Denmark into the UK. So women are having babies here with all that information. We're just not allowing women to have that information on British donors, which again is another reason that lots of women are seeking sperm abroad. And it seems, I mean, it seems slightly strange as well that at 18 you could presumably then find out all that information. Like, why not? Yeah, give it to them at the very start. Yeah, and also as as someone put to me in this piece. Nowadays, with the with the internet and the rise of um, ancestry and DNA websites, people are actually finding out really, I think, who donors are, or at least who their diblings are. A word that I did not know before this piece, which means your donor siblings. They're finding out way earlier, really, than eighteen, practically anyway. So it makes I think the UK law. I mean, of course, I understand why it's there. It's a safeguarding thing, but it does make it look quite antiquated, I think, compared to other countries. And Ameta, that discrepancy that. Sophia just very well articulated there does seem a little odd given that it's about the same cost isn't it between between um you know importing uh non-british uh donations and british donations so if you can find out information about your the the, the donor i mean why wouldn't you uh is there any anticipation that the the laws might be deregulated more here in the uk or or is 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 there no sign of that at the moment i think i would I would love HSVA to consider what you just said, Serpy, because there's really not a lot to disclose with a baby picture or maybe even a, a drawing of the donor. That, that that would be helpful for the parents and helpful for the child. So I think we we need to build a lot closer connection between what our families uh, looking for and and how can we give that to the families and the child without connecting them with the donor because i'm quite sure for the donors they do this to help families into the world they they don't see themselves as part of that family they they have their own life so so and that is a very important distinction to 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 have so as a lawmaker i would do what i could to uh, to make sure the family could live as a family uh, based on the fact that they're using a donor and having the donor on the other hand live his life, which is not a relation to neither the family nor the child, but but a donation to that family. And that is, has created them. And that's also why, you know, as you said, donor conceived uh, children, uh, we don't use the word father and, and so forth, because it, it is giving you associations of uh, a reality uh, that are not existing. Uh, for for these um, they, this special group of people that are donor conceived. Thank you, Sophia and Anna Meta. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore. And I'm Lara Prendergast. And we hope you'll join us again next week. Mm-hmm.